0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 104. Today we're asking the question how can we get better at using measurement? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proben, and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And Drew, this is our first episode for 2023 and you picked this paper, so yeah, tell us a little bit about how it came about recording this one. Sure.
1: Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year, listeners. So David, I think you mentioned on the last episode that we both have services we use that track and recommend papers to us, uh, similar to Amazon's, if you liked this paper, you might like to read this paper too. And th- this one, to be, to be honest, just came across my desk and I liked the title. It was during the Christmas break, so I had enough time to do some reading, and yeah, I thought it might be interesting for us and interesting for the listeners.
0: Yeah, great. I think I've mentioned on a few podcasts, Drew, just one of the things I really enjoy about co-authoring with you is uh, the effort that you put in uh, to to titles of papers.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate it when other authors do that. No no one likes reading boring stuff. Just attention to the craftsmanship of producing the work so that people can actually read it and enjoy the reading experience, I think is always a value. And yeah, I think this paper definitely delivers.
0: Yeah, so I, I think I think it's a great paper. So Drew, do you want to introduce it? That's End the suspense.
1: Okay. So our paper is called Measurement Shmeasurement. Questionable Measurement Practices and How to Avoid Them. It was published in 2020, so pretty recent. And it was published in a journal called Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science. So, as you might guess from the title, this is really a journal by researchers for researchers about research. Um, Now it's pretty true that most journals are really made to be read only by other researchers, but this sort of journal is like specifically talking about doing the the research. But I quite like these journals, not just for myself, but I think it's good for non-researchers because it's where people reveal the sort of dirty truths of research. And it's often very helpful in just understanding how research works, and getting some ideas on how to critique research, getting some ideas on what works well, what doesn't work well, getting a sense of how research actually happens. And in this particular paper, it was actually published in a couple of workshops. So they obviously have been developing these ideas in conversations with other researchers about what's going well, what's not going well in the way we're currently doing research, in, in this case, in psychology. David, I don't know if you've had a chance to look up the authors. Um, uh, there's Professor J.K. Flake from McGill, who appears to me to be mid career academic, and she actually focuses on measurement as her research. So, you know, the first couple of sentences of her sort of research bio uh, are we measuring what we think we're measuring? This is a foundational question for psychological scientists because we often study phenomena that are difficult to observe and to measure. That really appeals to me as a safety scientist. <laughs> I think it's a foundational question for safety scientists because we often study these phenomena that are difficult to observe and measure. Um, and the second author, as usual, I'm going to mangle the name. This is Associate Professor Iiko Fraid from Leiden University. Um, and he's got a mixed body of work. It's sort of half about mental health and half about how do we measure stuff in order to research mental health. So both people are already sort of like widely published in this idea of how do we measure and what makes good measurement. And in this paper, they're kind of playing method police, pointing out what goes wrong with measuring things and what are the common problems they see in other papers to give advice to authors on how to improve their papers and advice on readers on how to understand and critique papers.
0: Yeah, Drew, and I think as much as it is a a paper by researchers for researchers about research, I think... um, you know, reading through this, it's very true of how practitioners approach their role inside organizations and what they were. I, I guess we're going to talk about quantification of, of phenomena that we're, we're trying to study. And, and they give the example that, you know, if you're standing next to someone, you can quite objectively measure how tall they are. But if you want to understand the extent to which they are anxious or depressed or, you know, some other psychological characteristic or trait or other aspect, You need a way of actually measuring that and we we then go to surveys and we then go to quantification. And I think this is a really important paper because it's not just researchers that use these types of research methods. Organizations use them all the time.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Cards, Cards on the table, David. My answer to problems with measurement is usually don't measure. So, I'll probably have a few snarky comments to make at the start of this paper because the author's sort of going to it just with the assumption that measurement is the only way to do research, is the only way to do investigation. And you know, I would say, yes, measure the person's height. If you want to ask how someone's feeling, don't give them a quantified survey. Ask them how they're feeling. Actually, listen to what they're saying. But yeah, there, there, are, there are times when, in order to do the sorts of things we want to do, in order to answer the sort of questions we want to answer, we do need to turn how they're feeling into a number so that we can do things like measure, does that number go up or down when we use certain treatments? Does a drug make that number go up and down? Does therapy make that number go up and down? And those are things that we can't do with qualitative research, we have to have measurements for.
0: So to have this conversation today, Drew, we're sort of gonna sort of in three parts. You know, what these authors say the problems are in relation to to measurement, and clearly by the title of the paper, they they see some real problems with what's going on in particularly psychological research, why these problems matter. So so why these problems with measurement uh should matter to researchers and practitioners. And then they they lay out six questions that we can ask in relation to any research, and researchers should actually ask and have good answers for themselves. And, you know, I think. Drew, you and I both think that these are quite a good guide for not, well, for reading research papers, definitely, but, you know, anytime you see a measurement and a conclusion in relation to that measurement about some aspect of your organisation, then these these six questions are good questions to have answers to.
1: Yeah, and they're all questions that if an author doesn't answer them in the paper, they're questions that peer reviewers really should ask in their peer review. And so if you, as a reader, see a paper that doesn't have answers to these questions, then there's sort of multiple layers of either sloppiness or lack of transparency that have gone on. People have been making decisions. They might be good decisions. They might be doing the research well, but they're just not being clear and transparent about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that always leaves the possibility for things to slip through the cracks.
0: So, Drew, to to load you up for maybe your first snarky comment, they. The authors introduce this idea of questionable measurement practices and, and go into the paper saying that a foundational part of science is defining and measuring what is being studied. And before one can study the etiology of something like depression um, or the efficacy of an intervention to treat, treat it, one must define the construct under investigation and build instruments that can measure it accurately.
1: So, David, I think that's a fairly accurate characterization of one particular approach to science. This is how some people approach things. is We start off, we observe a phenomenon, we then sort of put boundaries around it and labels on top of it, then we measure it, then we look at what makes the number go up or down, what causes it, what, what, how does that relate to other measurements. But I think that, that description sort of puts measurement at the centre of things, whereas I'm not, I'm not very happy with the idea that that's the only way science happens. Particularly, it sort of underestimates the amount of work that's necessary in that defining bit. They talk about defining and measuring as if they're the same thing. Whereas I reckon there can be multi-year research programs just in understanding and defining something before you get to the point of being ready to put measurements onto it. And maybe we'll talk a little bit later about how that particularly applies in safety. Certainly measurement is a common and important part of science.
0: Yeah, I think people, you know, maybe see, you know, this sort of a narrower definition as the scientific method, which is, um, what are we studying? What do we think is going to happen? How do we create a measurement to to know if that's happening like that? I did receive quite a lot of – because I didn't measure anything in my PhD, Drew. It was, or it was entirely descriptive and there was more often than not peer review comments back from the journals about, you know, there's, there's no measurement in this study.
1: Yeah. Just to illustrate sort of the strengths and weaknesses of this, if we talk about our own safety clutter research. so. David, I know you and your consulting have tried to do a little bit of clutter measurement, but I think it'd be fair to say that there's currently no generally accepted way to measure clutter. There's no like universal measure of how cluttered is your organization on a scale of one to 10. Now, it might be great to have that measurement. Particularly if you're gonna say, okay, is our organization getting more cluttered or less cluttered? You might like to have a measurement, but you don't have to have a measurement for clutter to be a real concept or for clutter itself to be real and important to think about and talk about. And there are lots of ways of understanding clutter other than by counting numbers of pages or you know, measuring how cluttered people think they are. Those measurements might in fact be deceptive. They might sort of decrease your understanding of clutter if you don't get the measurement right.
0: Yeah. So, so I think the authors also say that these quantitative measurements are are a useful tool, but they, are, they aren't the only tool. And and then they go on to sort of just exclude that whole qualitative inquiry approach to research from this paper. So everything we're talking about in this paper is sort of specifically in relation to where a researcher does quantify a measurement in relation to their phenomena.
1: Yeah. So, so how about we just sort of I, – I really hate the, the way they start the first page of the paper by, look how important measurement is. But let's, let's take that for granted and say, okay, we've agreed that we want to measure. What are the – issues that we need to worry about. And I think this is the point at which I first sort of started agreeing with what they were saying. Is They say, collecting evidence that the instruments scientists build actually measure the construct scientists claim they measure is a difficult and necessary part of the research pro- process. Um, and th- that's, that's one of those truths universally acknowledged, so often sort of glanced over and sort of shoved to one side as people rush to find a survey that they can use. But it's, it's genuinely difficult and genuinely important if you're gonna measure anything to make sure that the way you're measuring it
0: actually measures what you wanna measure. So Jude, do you, you wanna sort of lead us into the, to the next part of the paper now then?
1: Okay, so, so let's go through some of the sort of main points they make in the early, early parts. So first thing they say is that this is really common. That this thinking about are you measuring what you're measuring is just left entirely out of lots and lots of papers. So they cite a few sort of meta-studies. One that says that between 40% and 93% of measures used for educational behavior lack any sort of evidence that the measure is valid. I don't know quite how that... I haven't read the underlying paper they're citing there to how they got the range between 40 and 93%. But I would have thought that 40% was pretty bad (laughs) given that there's no good reason why it shouldn't be 100%. Uh, Another one said that of a whole bunch of measurement instruments in review of emotion research, 69% of them had no reference to where the measurement had come from, either to any sort of prior research into the measurement or any process even that the authors themselves had followed to develop the thing that they were measuring. So so they were all just like, hey, here's a scale we're going to use to measure anger. I've invented some questions. Here's a scale we're going to use to measure jealousy. Here's some questions with no mention of how they came up. With that said then another study said that in research about the relationship between technology use and well-being so that's things like you know does social media make you sad does playing video games make you violent researchers pick and choose between questionnaires making the constructs more of an accessory than a guide for analysis so people are just sort of like spouting their own ideas and they're just plucking a survey that they can use to validate to, to like claim that what they're doing is a little bit more rigorous than it actually is. And so the authors say that when you don't have this validity, then how do you know anything about the actual conclusions of the study? if If you're measuring the relationship between social media use and depression, and you don't have a trusted way of measuring social media use, and you don't have a trusted way of measuring depression, then nothing you say about the relationship between the two of them can be trusted either. So you know, having good measurement is necessary just for any validity. And they, they say you know, there's lots of reasons it could come from. It could be just under-reporting, so people do the stuff they just don't bother to tell us. Could be ignorance, sort of students who don't know better, uh, negligence, people who should know better. Misrepresentation, people who actually aren't doing the right thing and are trying to hide that they're not doing the right thing. And they say, look, we don't have to judge what it is. We don't have to say it's evil. We don't have to say it's dumb. We don't have to say it's negligent. All of those problems would be solved if people were only transparent. If at least people told us what they're doing, then we don't have to worry about sort of the underlying causes for why they're making particular choices. If they just explained to us why they're doing what they're doing, and then they throw in this term "questionable measurement practice," uh, which is a kind of a riff off the idea of questionable research practices, which is a label that's been stuck just with the general problem of validity. And psychological research. They're sort of taking that general problem and they're focusing in on this particular category of what are we choosing to measure? Uh, David, your sort of thoughts about that initial setup?
0: Yeah, I think, I I mean, I I think um, clearly this is a really, really important research uh, aspect of research. Yeah, I guess the conclusions of any paper stem from the analysis of, of the measurement. So if you're, and and often i think there's just an assumption an assumption that you know the research method matches the uh the research question and and can answer the research question and often maybe we're not as uh well i guess i guess what we're doing what we've what i've learned in the last 104 episodes or something is that you know the peer review process of research helps but it doesn't stop bad research from being published and i think what we're talking about here is um you know one are those things that actually turn research into bad research
1: yeah, I think that's fair enough. And the authors then have a section sort of on why should you even care about this problem? And this is something that I personally struggle to adequately communicate on things like social media. So you get a lot of people who think that like weaknesses in research are just something that research method geeks care about, you know, that it would be nice if the research was done better, that might earn you more academic points. but. What we've got is what we've got, and at least it's good enough, it's an indication. It's, But the point they make is that like, without this fundamental validity, the answer could be entirely backwards and you wouldn't know. So we shouldn't just think, oh, lack of validity is a theoretical problem. When we don't have validity, the answer could be the opposite to the one that the researchers have published. So it's not nearly good enough, it's not partially good enough, it's not a hint towards the right direction. It's just plain a black box. We don't know what the answer is unless we've got enough validity to trust the answer. And so, you know, if a study has poor validity, you shouldn't treat it as tentative, you should treat it as no information. That they reference here something, David, I don't... Have we talked about the garden of forking paths on the podcast before?
0: Not that I recall, no, having read it in this paper.
1: Okay, so, so, so can you just spend a little moment to explain this? Because I think it is... Well, I find it interesting and I think it is important. So so this is a theory that was generated to explain why research can be bad without being negligent or unethical. So the idea is that you're walking through a garden and every time you come to a junction, you can either turn left or right. And then you come to the next junction, you can turn left or right, next junction, left or right. And that's what designing research is like. You're going through a garden, you're making lots and lots of decisions. And the answer you get to your research question, is that coming because it's fundamentally part of the data? Or is it coming because of all of those little decisions you've made along the way? You could come out of this garden in lots and lots of different places. If all of the paths converge to only one exit, then maybe you can trust it. But if there are 10 exits and your decision of the exit comes down to the decisions you made along the way, then you can't really claim that that's the correct exit from the garden. And that doesn't have to be that you're being unethical because every researcher has to make all these decisions. So just give you a quick example, say we're trying to measure whether safety climate affects injury rates. You've got to make lots and lots of decisions to study that. What time period, when do you start collecting data, when do you stop collecting data? Are you gonna include injuries to and from work? Are you gonna include subcontractors? Are we gonna survey people directly Use the company's reporting system or use the data from WorkCover? Do you include every single record that's in the system or just the ones where you can confirm that there was actually a serious injury? What do you do if there are duplicate records? Do you count both or just one? What do you do if a record's incomplete? Do you count it or throw it out? Do we measure management workers together or do we separate them out for our analysis? Of the dozens of different safety climate measurement surveys, which one are we going to use? Are we going to break it up into dimensions or are we just going to use a total count from the survey? If you're going to do the research, you've got to make every one of those decisions. And the answer to is there a relationship between safety climate and injury could be different depending on how you make those decisions. Now, if you're an unethical researcher, what you actually do is you try every combination of decisions until you get the answer you want. And then you publish just that one. If you're a naive researcher, you just make every decision, get an answer and assume that it's the correct one and just ignore all of the other possibilities. So so the way the authors of this paper put it, some, some researchers may intentionally explore every forking path in the garden to find a significant result, so those are the unethical ones, whereas others may simply get lost, taking a few wrong turns. They're the ones who've just got a result by chance as a result of the decisions they've made. They say, you do. this is why the choice of measurement instruments is so important. Because if the answer is going to be, yes, there is a relationship or no, there's not a relationship. And that answer is going to depend on which measurement tool you used. It's really important that you're clear about why you picked that particular measurement tool.
0: And I think that's a really helpful example, Drew. And I think just just to also make it... uh directly practical and, you know, because I was thinking a lot about, you know, KPIs that we use in safety and measurements, just measurements generally that we use in so-called leading indicators that we use in safety. And, and you know, the research sort of problem that we're talking about is like the practical equivalent of, you know, counting the number of leadership visits that happen in your organisation and at the end of the month, that going down and saying, well, our safety leadership has got worse over last month. If you want to understand safety leadership, counting the number of safety leadership visits that management do probably doesn't give you any insight into the construct that you're trying to understand. And I think that's the research equivalent of measuring, using a, a measurement approach, which doesn't actually match what, you, what you're what you trying to understand.
1: Yeah, although in this paper, I think they're going almost a step weaker than that. They're, they're complaining about people who say we measured safety leadership, and don't bother telling you that the way they measured safety leadership was by counting the number of leadership visits or why they thought that was a good way to measure it. So that, that's the catch is someone tells you that leadership's gone up or down. You think, oh, that's a problem until you learn or all they did is count the number of visits. Oh, okay, maybe I don't trust this claim anymore.
0: Are we ready to step through these six questions?
1: Yeah, so we've got six questions. Let's go through them in order. Right, kick us off. Okay, so, so the first question and is what is your construct? Now, a construct is just a research way of saying, what is the actual thing that it is that you're trying to measure? David, this is something that you and I actually talked a fair bit about in our manifesto for reality-based safety science, because it's something that definitely happens a lot in safety, is people are trying to measure things before they've even really pinned down what it is that they're Trying to measure, and they don't have a good theoretical definition of it in the first place. Uh, so, you know, what we said in the manifesto, uh, if you don't mind me sort of, sort of reading it as a direct quote, uh, most quantitative research in safety involves the measurement of attributes of phenomena that are interesting because they're believed to be related to safety. In fact, we said safety researchers usually adopt the jargon of behavioral psychology by referring to these measurements as constructs. Safety scientists measure constructs relating to leadership. Uh, cl- safety climate, safety culture, worker behaviour, uh, individual perception of behaviour, but most of those constructs we started measuring them before we actually had good theories about them, at least good theories within safety. So we've got these surveys, but if you compare the survey to the theory, they don't really line up. So like if you read a paper that just like tries to qualitatively describe what safety culture is. It talks about things like, you know, cultural artifacts, symbols, representations, who our heroes are, what meaning we attribute to safety. And then you'll get a safety culture survey and it asks questions like, how good is the safety management system? That's, you know, it's theoretically incoherent to ask that question based on the definition. And so that's the concern they have is just, unless we've adequately described what we're trying to measure and made sure that our measure matches that thing, then it's not a good measure. Maybe David, going back to your example, if you've described a good leader as someone who shows up on site often, then it makes total sense to measure leadership by the number of site visits. But if your measurement, if you describe a good leader as anything else, then that's a bad measure.
0: Yeah, perfect. So, so this first question about what is your construct is what is the thing, what is the thing that you are you are interested in, and I think we can just to build on that last example, Drew, just to um, reinforce that point. I think we, we, we should do a lot more of that inside our organizations as well. We're actually really clearly defining, you know, what we're actually trying to understand before we start just slapping measures around.
1: Yeah. Actually, our organization, so my organization, Griffith Uni, has gone through a process of sort of describing desirable performance attributes at different levels. So, like, what does a lecturer do? What does a senior lecturer do? What does an associate professor do? What does a professor do? And they haven't got to the point yet of attaching numbers to those things. But what that does is at least creates sort of conceptual clarity of what the expectation is. And we've been having like a year-long conversation as an organization about, even without numbers, just are these reasonable expectations? Is that in fact the job description? Is that in fact what we expect from people? Is that want, what we want? If someone was to actually just go by the letter of the performance expectations. Would they actually be doing the job we want them to be doing or are they missing things or would they be focusing on the wrong things? And yeah, if we're gonna measure performance, then we gotta have that conversation first.
0: So assuming now that we understand the thing that the researcher was trying to investigate, what's the next question?
1: Okay, so the next question is simply, why and how did you select your measure? So typical example there, we've decided that our construct is safety climate. Why did we pick partic- a particular safety climate measurement survey. Why that one? And yeah, in something like safety climate, there are dozens and dozens of different survey instruments for safety climate. So why did you pick that particular one? Is it because it aligns with a particular theory? Is it because it's been previously tested in a particular way that makes it better than the other ones? And one of the things they point out is that a lack of conceptual clarity, so in other words, if we don't really understand that underlying concept, then we just get lots and lots of different measures and that's definitely what's happened with safety climate is all these measures of safety climate seem to be measuring almost totally different things why did you pick this particular one and call it safety climate
0: they give some examples like obviously because it's a uh, psychological research or a research journal and they said um, there's like there's like 280 scales for measuring depression and 65 different scales for emotions and like you said we we probably got 30 or 40 or even 50 cult- safety culture or safety climate tools. And they also mentioned that some of them have like five or six different lengths, like a 15-item scale, a 25-item scale, a 42-item scale. Some translate better or 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 less well into different languages. So in some of these areas, you, you you really, I think, need to have a good answer for why did you choose the measure that you chose.
1: Yep. Yep. One example I really want to call out in safety is lots of researchers in safety tend to use these different things from psychology as part of their work. And it's definitely a problem in safety research that people seem to just pick one survey at random as if that's the first one they've looked at. You know, someone in safety wants to measure anger so they find a an anger survey and they don't even seem aware that there are 19 different surveys that are specifically devoted to measuring how angry you are. And the one that really annoys me is people want to measure personality, and they use Myers-Briggs. But they never say, why did I pick Myers-Briggs? and There's no good answer to that question, because no one who has done their homework would use Myers-Briggs. It is simply, they've picked one. And if they were transparent, if they were like, why? You know, Here are the ones I considered, here's the different measures of validity, here's the theory behind it. You know, I happen personally to be a deep subscriber to the early 20th century theories of Jung. And that's why I picked Myers-Briggs, right? And I mean, that is the only reason why you picked Myers-Briggs. But they never say that, they just say, oh, this is a commonly used survey, this is a popular survey, so they pick it. David, there's one particular concept. This is actually the first I've heard this language, but I think it's beautiful, I'm gonna use it repeatedly. They call this the jingle-jangle fallacy. So jingle is when two instruments measure the same, You think two instruments measure the same construct because they have similar names. So you might put like safety climate and safety culture into that category, or even like two different safety climate surveys. Just because they've got the same name on them, you think they're measuring the same thing. Whereas one is like a measure of individual attitudes towards safety, and the other is a totally different measurement of how good the company's safety management processes are, or leadership commitment to safety. But they've been given the same name, so people just think they're both surveys about the same thing because both people called it safety climate. And then Jangle is assuming that two measures assess different constructs because they have different names. And I think we do that as well sometimes. We say um, some people talk about pro-social safety and then some people talk about citizenship behavior. And then you look at the items in the survey and they're exactly the same. But we don't consider them the same. We haven't done our homework because we were just looking for other papers on pro-social safety. We never thought to look at citizenship. And they say that you just basically transparency helps readers, reviewers, and consumers of research spot jingle jangle. I don't know, I might have called that formally like an equivocation fallacy, but yeah, jingle jangle is so much better way of explaining it.
0: Yeah, no, I like that description. It's always so nice to have some new terms. And I, and I think it's so common. I'm just thinking of all the papers that I've read, which is just, you know, we're, we're measuring safety climate. We've gone with this what, you know, generally widely used and accepted and available you know tool and that's it and so with with no other information about the validity and the alignment to the construct and and i think these researchers point out any of the detail like you know what were the actual questions like even if you know what the what the title of the instrument was you rarely ever get any of the detail inside a paper of you know, what the actual individual questions were.
1: Yes, so David, that is in fact, the next question they have is, what measure did you use to operationalize the construct? Which is a really fancy way of just saying, tell us the damn questions. <laughs> you did a survey, why the heck didn't you publish the survey as a table in your paper, as an appendix in the paper, as supplemental materials in the paper? And not just, you know, the questions, but did you ask them with a five point then Likert scale? Did you ask them electronically? Did you have an interviewer ask the questions? Um, how many items did you have? <laughs> what language was it in? These are like basic things that should be really easy to report.
0: And I think often in psychological research, well, maybe it's, I don't know if it is actually often, but it feels to me like it's quite common for there to also be batteries of of measures as well. So I want to I want to understand the relationship between multiple things. So I'll put together a little battery of three or four different measurement instruments and, and maybe deliver them in one go. So 15 questions about anger and then 15 questions about, you know, Personal circumstance and, and so putting putting this all together. And the reason they even say in this paper, like, you know, what order did you sequence those that battery in? You know, did you prime any responses to subsequent instruments by the previous uh instrument that had just been completed? And I don't recall ever, I think, sort of seeing that level of detail about how how the construct was operationalized. No, not at
1: all. David, there used to be back when Twitter was still working. A trending hashtag called overly honest research methods, which is like, what would papers look like if people were transparent about genuinely why they selected things? So, you, you, why was this the best way of measuring anger? Because I asked my supervisor, and my supervisor said, here's an anger survey. Well, there were 19 measures, but 18 of them were copyright, and our library doesn't subscribe to them. But this 19th one, there was a webpage where I could download it from. So, I think I think those would often be the answers to why did we use this particular yeah. measure. Uh, how do how do we operationalize it? We cut and pasted it.
0: Yeah. So if, if you're if you're reading papers and, and and you're seeing conclusions in relation to you know a, a particular construct or issue, yeah, you know, the what we're talking about now is just, you know, understanding the measure before you run off and I mean otherwise you're just putting blind faith in the researchers' you know decisions around all of these things we're talking about.
1: And Dave, that's a good practice when you're reading a paper is if someone says they've done a survey, first thing you should do is just skip to the part of the paper where they list out the survey questions and just read the questions. Then you know what they asked. And if you can't find the questions, toss out the paper and find another one that's a little bit more transparent about what they did. So the the next question is a little getting down into the details now is how did you quantify your measure? So just because you've asked a survey doesn't mean that you know how someone actually processed it. So there's three different things they say there that matter. There's transformations of the responses. So that's things like, you know, some items are reverse scored. You score it backwards instead of, uh, you know, if you've got one question, how angry are you? And then the second question is, how calm are you? You've got to score one of those backwards in order to be able to mean the same thing. Uh, some, how do you select which items or stimuli form the scores? So often what people do is they do a sort of first path and they exclude certain questions because the results on those questions weren't consistent. So explaining just exactly how that was done and why that was done. Or they group items together and they say, okay, these three items measure the same thing, so I'm going to add them together. Or And then there's different ways you can add them together. You can average them, you can standardize them, you can group your participants into categories, you can put them in order and pick the top 10% and the bottom 10%. Lots of different ways of doing it, but yeah, it's important to know what methods were used. How did you turn this survey into a score or a set of scores?
0: No, no. I think I think a lot. I mean, I, I, my undergraduate psychology degree was in the '90s, and it's the last time I played around with quantitative research and and statistics. So I just see tables and tables of numbers in this these types of research papers and. That's your job. That's your job's to explain that to me, Drew. <laughs> not, it doesn't mean anything to me. So I am one of those people who would tend to go to the findings and discussion part of the paper and and sort of go through the researcher's conclusions. And I've done that a number of times in this since we've been podcasting. Drew, I'll send you a paper because of some really interesting conclusions, and you'll say, "Come back to me. And, this is rubbish research. We're not talking about this."
1: Yeah, and, and David, I think that I think people reading a published paper should have a right to be able to do that. You, p- peer review has lots of weaknesses and things that it can't pick up, but basic things like the, the summary and conclusions of the paper should be a fair representation of what the data actually said. That that you should be allowed to take that for granted. You, you shouldn't have to dive into the weeds of the table. And I think some of these questions give you an alternate approach rather than having to actually check the numbers. Because someone who has been transparent about each of these things, you then know, okay, the peer reviewers have had a chance to clearly read these things as well and they've done the checking for me. Whereas if you try to answer these broader questions and the paper doesn't have answers, then you know that the peer reviewers haven't really done their job either. Yep, so the next one is just, did you modify the scale? And if so, how and why? This is something that happens a lot in safety, and I think it's a good thing. It has to be done, right? You pick up a survey that was intended for measuring locus of control around illness, and you want to change that to measure locus of control around wearing PPE. So you pick a standard survey for locus of control, you just change all the words from my health to my PPE. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, as long as you've got a good reason to do it, and as long as you're transparent about what you've done. It's just one of those things that if you don't explain what you've done. I know I've read a lot of papers where they say, Oh, I used a standard locus of control instrument and I adapted it for safety. But that's all. Right? They don't even they don't tell you what the adapt what the changes were or how they adapted it or why they made the changes they did. And if they're transparent, you can just look at what they've done and say, yeah, well, that makes total sense. So I think that's really all we need to say about modification.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so and then the last the last question, I guess. Did you create the measure on the fly? So I guess, have you just made up your, your measurement?
1: OK, so so yeah, this, this is the simplest one and is the one that I get most angry about. You, the, the, so the authors say, sometimes there are no scales available to study a construct of interest, or there may be good reasons not to use existing scales. OK, fantastically. You know, sometimes there are no ways of measuring what you want to measure. Sometimes all the existing ways are crap and you need something else. How often does that actually happen? One of the most common things I have to say when I'm like reviewing a paper, um, including like reviewing someone's entire PhD, why the hell did you make up your own way of measuring safety climate? You, was it that you weren't aware that there were already dozens of safety climate surveys? You, did you go through every one of those existing ones and have good reasons for directing all of them? So, that you know, it was just absolutely essential that you make up your own. And you, I'm asking those questions in the knowledge that the answer is no. You weren't even lazy. You did one type of work that was a lot of work because you were too lazy to do the other type of work, which was finding out that someone had already done it. And 99 times out of 100, an existing measure, they've already made all of those decisions. So, you're not at risk of the garden of forking paths, you're not at risk of your process is determined by the decisions you've made 99 times out of 100 they've already validated it they've already screened the items they've already done the work to make it theoretically consistent if you're going to make it up yourself you've got to do all of that work for yourself you've got to theoretically define the construct you've got to have a set of test items and then screen those test items and then rerun the survey and then validate it again and then test that survey and then roll it out to measure what you want to measure and then you've got to explain all of that in your paper so that we understand how you came up with this new survey. And by the time you've done that, you've written two other papers before your current paper. One proposing the measure, another paper validating it. Third paper is the one where you... you an entire PhD could be develop a measure, validate the measure, use the measure.
0: Yeah, and, and a, literature review, a literature review at the start explaining why that there are no measures that exist that do what you need it to do.
1: Yeah, perfect. <laughs> There's the design of someone's PhD if no one else has already done all that work in your field but if someone's already done it your literature review should find it and then yeah change your plans
0: and use it yeah yeah no it's a great, great it's a great point so so and I guess it does happen in research you, you make up a measurement and if we take these researchers you know maybe maybe there is something that you want to understand then they basically just said you need to go through these whole six questions and explain you know how you met each of those ones in the in the design of your own your own measurement instrument.
1: But David, I think this one is very important for organizations because for almost anything an organization wants to measure, academics have already done the work for you to have like seriously well-developed and rigorously validated measures. You're still gonna do a, need to do a little bit of work to check that it's actually suitable, that the construct it measures matches what you as an organization care about. You're still probably gonna have to pay to use the survey to get a license for it, but all of that is way less than the cost and effort of developing something new. Or worse, paying a consultant to pretend to have done the work when all they've done is just make up a set of questions without doing all of the validation.
0: Or end up using something that isn't actually helpful for what you're trying to understand um, and making decisions based off that.
1: Sorry, David, I just realised in saying that that you are a consultant. And I'm very well aware that you have developed new measures and i have seen the amount of work you have put in to developing and validating the measures before you use them with your clients. And yeah, so when I malign consultants, um, I'm, I'm, that, that, that is you know, not all, hashtag not all consultants.
0: Ha <laughs> No, that's no, no need. Um, I, I feel exactly the same way.
1: Yeah, I think what annoys me is seeing the effort, seeing the effort you put in and then seeing other people who clearly haven't, who, who would like do, claiming to do exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah, I guess it's for me, for me, it's the lesser of two evils than uh, having to get a real job inside an organisation again. So, so, so I think these these questions. So I think in any, you know, what we do in research is we seek to in quantitative research is we seek to measure something, uh, usually by by measuring something that is isn't isn't readily quantifiable. So we need to have some kind of instrument that uh, that, that gives us an insight into what we're trying to understand. And I think this paper really highlights when you when you read through this paper and it's really accessible the language is really accessible uh, too and' it's, it's open access I think as well. Drew so it's just a good it's a good paper to read through and just go how critical are we as consumers of research? And then if we translate that into our organizational practice, what does it mean for the things that we measure inside our our companies and uh, how how critical should we be of some of those things. So Drew do you want to move into some practical takeaways?
1: Sure, just before we do, should we just give a list of those six questions again. So the six questions to ask are, what is your construct? How and why did you select the measurement instrument, so the survey, being careful of Jingle Jangle? What did you use to operationalize the construct? So that is, you like, what exactly items did you use? How many items, long form, short form? How did you quantify your measures? How did you group them, average them, include, exclude? Did you modify? And if so, how and why? And did you measure on the fly? So we're looking for answers to those six questions. So takeaways.
0: Yeah. So the first one, I think for researchers, I guess they, the paper tends to conclude on the way through that, you know, we don't know if people are ignorant or misrepresenting or what, but, you know, if we all just be more transparent around these six, these six questions, then, you know, people can, who are consuming the research can just make up their own mind about, you know, their, their faith in the conclusion. So I think the, the practical takeaway for, for researchers is to you know, maybe expand out your methods sections in your papers a little bit a little bit more than you currently do.
1: David, I would add to that based on some feedback I've had about our own manifesto, which is that when you've got a paper like this, which is like common pitfalls to avoid in research, ask the questions and think about them before you design the research. Don't pick up a paper like this when you're finished and then use them to postdoc justify what you did. Because you sometimes you, you should be transparent about this, but if you're honest with yourself, the answer to some of these questions should cause you to go back and do it differently.
0: So it's more of a checklist for research design rather than a checklist for research write-up. Exactly. Perfect. And then I guess as consumers of research, which we all are in one way or another, either directly or, or indirectly, you know, as much as the peer review process of research publication, you know, helps with a level of with a level of quality, we in quantitative uh measurement processes, particularly around individual and, and social type phenomena like we're talking about in psychological journals, you can't just do what, what I said earlier. You can't just we can't just go to the abstract and the and the findings and take the researchers' conclusions at face value. We need to understand, you know, this level of detail about the measurement process and the associated validity of of, of the measurement.
1: Yeah, and what I like about this is validity here, we're not talking about understanding some statistical analysis of the results. We're not talking about statistical validity. We're talking about read the sentence where they say why they picked that particular survey, and don't accept an answer from the researcher that you wouldn't accept from your own employee. So if the answer is, this is the first one we came to, or this is common, other people use this a lot, just don't accept that as an answer. Look for good answers about why, what were they trying to measure? Why was this a good survey? And they should be able to explain that to you in plain English, not using maths.
0: And then the final takeaway, I guess, for practitioners, and, and I guess many of our listeners are practitioners, and and it's just thinking about the things we've spoken about today and in this paper and, and thinking about how you research and report measures in your own organisation. So, you know, every every measurement that you, you have in your organisation in relation to an aspect of, of, of safety or, or work and then how you represent that measurement in your organisation, think about whether that's a, whether you can answer these six questions for for each of each of those. Do I know what I'm what I'm seeking to understand? Why do I think that this measurement is a is a good way of doing it? Am I clear with everyone in the organisation exactly how we operationalise it and how we analyse it and and doing all of that? And are we just making stuff up ourselves?
1: And if you're too embarrassed to share those results, that's probably a good clue that you maybe should have put some more thought into it.
0: So Drew, the question we asked this week was, how can we get better at using measurement?
1: David, normally we need a sentence to answer this and I take a paragraph. The authors in this paper actually have a single word answer for us that just recurs throughout the paper, which is transparency. If we're honest about what we're doing, that's the starting point for all other improvement.
0: Excellent. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.